0: said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name
1: of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Dr. Ross Grant.
0: Is it okay if we just say a, a short prayer again? Uh, we'll just bow our heads, Father in heaven, thank you again for an opportunity to be able to uh, present some of the um, information that we have access to, particularly after two thousand years. Uh, and we just pray that you would be with us today that our minds will be clear and open and uh, that we'll be able to understand truly the role that you want us to play in this world in christ 's name. Amen. You know, I, I love this Christianity. Is it the solution to the world's problems? Because really, what's the point in us spending a lot of time on stuff that's a fake? You know, the one thing I hate about uh, even myself occasionally is if I'm not genuine about something. You know, if I, if I like somebody, I like to be able to tell them, you know, I like them. This is, this is what I like about you. If there's something else that uh, kind of is annoying, I like to kind of get somehow close to them and while I'll tell them all the good things, I'll let them know that there's a couple of bad things. And I want them to do the same thing to me because I don't want to be a fake. And unfortunately, we've got a world full of fake. We have even a concept of fake news or fake truth or alternate truth. Let's have a look at some of the logic of this and let's see whether or not we are actually engaged in something which has genuine value. And there will be a little bit of logic I need you to follow me through here uh, as we go through. It's not a lot, but uh, uh, hopefully we'll all follow along with it. So Christ made this comment. He said, I came that they may have life and have it to the full, or in some translations, have it abundantly. Now, did Christ, was that if he is the God of the universe? And let's just put everything aside here for the minute. This is the God, the Bible tells us, who actually created the universe. So if he's right, if he says something, he's either right, in which case we should believe it and there should be evidence for it, or he's not telling the truth, in which case he's a liar and not quite the God we thought he was. Does that, is that true? It's true. And if it is the creator God that's saying something and ultimately we can trust him, then we can really trust him for everything he says. There was once a, a guy who was asked, uh, it was a minister, and he was talking to one of the, uh, uh, the uh, theatre actors. And he said, why is it that uh, when I stand up to preach, he said, uh, you know, I get a half full audience and then people don't listen to me anyway. But he says, and I'm telling them something that's true. And he says, but when you get up, he says, you've got a packed house and everybody wants to hear everything you're saying. He says, well, I'll tell you why. He says, because when I get up, I'm telling them something that is fake, as if it's true. And the trouble with most preachers when they stand up, they stand up and tell something that's true, but as if it's fake. You get what I mean? I mean, either this is true or not. Either it's going to have an impact on me. And if it is true, by God's grace, I want to take it 100%. But let's have a look. Has he delivered on his objective? So Christ said, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly or have it to the full. Is Christ, is Christianity? Now, I'm not saying religion. You understand the difference? I'm not saying religion is a solution to the world's problem. It might be. But I'm just asking, is Christianity? And you understand the difference? Christianity is the principles that Christ taught. Now, of course, you've got groups that take the name and don't necessarily do exactly what he said. In fact, there's one group out there which is talking about, uh, you know, oh, we just focus Jesus all. But you get into the theology and they do nothing that Jesus actually says. In fact, most of them don't even know what he says. But anyway, Christianity, what are some key features? Well, we've got 2.2 billion people in the world who call themselves Christian. And the key thing God created through Jesus Christ, we've got that, Genesis 1.1, John 1.1-3. You can have a look at those if you want. So God created, and that's pretty massive. When I was a young guy and I always had an interest in the sciences and I thought to myself, God probably knows something about theology but he probably knows very little about science. Well, that's a very naive view. Of course, we've got the God who made it all. The basis of God's character according to the Bible is love. Does anybody know what that word love actually is in the Greek? It is agape, agape, yeah, agapeo. And what's the definition of agape? Yeah, pure selflessness. So this is a principled love. It's not just about you being emotionally attached to somebody and therefore you do it. It is saying, God is love. God is agapeo. God will give himself for you regardless. And man is alienated from God and as such inherently selfish. So there is a problem. We have become alienated from this God of love. And because of that alienation, man naturally is self-centred. Is that borne out by the example of what we see every day in ourselves? Man cannot be reunited with God, that is, achieve goodness, selflessness, and hence eternal life without Christ's help. Is that making sense? We actually can't get there. There's lots of great mechanisms that people have put forward, but so far, none of them seem to work. It seems, and Christ was the one that says, that no man comes to the Father but through me. So these are just the key features of Christianity. Man has a hope of eternal conscious existence. I underlined conscious, because it's really interesting. There's a bunch of people who are out there, different groups, but some of the biggest religions. And the interesting thing is, That for some of these two of the four major religions is that your consciousness, you don't have a conscious eternity. You might reach nirvana or become one with Brahma, but you're not actually a conscious entity. And I have asked people who follow this kind of thing, what is the difference between that and actually being eternally oblivious? In other words, being obliterated at death. So you are eternally dead. There actually is no difference. But man has a hope, according to Christianity. Man has a hope of eternal conscious existence with God. And you're as a conscious entity in heaven and on earth and on the earth made new. So reflecting, we're all born. We will all die. Does anybody want to challenge that one? There's a pretty good chance that we're all born. I'd say that that would be 100% true. And unless something happens, Christ may come back, but unless that happens, we will all die. It will happen. There is sin, and the definition of sin is simply selfishness in the world and in us. All sin is, we know that the Bible talks about the sin is the transgression of the law. But that law, particularly the Ten Commandment law, is the moral law, and it is our responsibility to God and a responsibility to others. And so sin in its essence is self-centeredness. I'm putting myself first rather than others first. What did Christ say was the greatest, uh, with the greatest law? When he was asked the greatest law, he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and soul. And he said, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the term love in both of those was also that term Agapeo, which was selflessness. So, in other words, the greatest law was selflessness, and yet the focus of us naturally is selfishness. Do you need to teach a child how to be selfish? They seem to pick that up all by themselves. You know, that's mine. I'll take that. I want more of that. Can I have that? I'll have that. But what do you have to teach them? Share. To share. To give something to others. To wait a minute, let somebody else have a turn. Sin is definitely inherent in who we are. If you want to solve social problems in the world, we have to get rid of that selfishness. Is that right? I don't know whether you heard on the news just recently, but uh, not far from our place, West Pennant Hills there, in the Hills District, there was a tragic shooting of two teenagers by the father because of the estrangement between he and his wife. He shot them both, two teenage children dead, and then committed suicide himself. Now the tragedy of that was, it seems that he was trying to make a point to his wife, it was a custody uh, issue, and basically saying, well, if I can't have them, neither can you. Who was he thinking about? Was he thinking about the children? He's just snuffed out their life. Was he thinking about the wife? Yes, he was, but he was thinking about getting the most pain that he could inflict on her and then killed himself. Absolute tragedy. That's selfishness. That's sin. Any method that gets you to focus on yourself in order to stop you being focused on yourself has to fail. I'll just say that again. Any method that gets you to focus on yourself in order to stop you being so focused on yourself has to fail. Can I say it one more time? There are some very big philosophical groups out there who are getting you to focus a lot on yourself. If our problem is the fact that we are focused on ourselves, is focusing on ourselves going to solve the problem? I mean, it's not. It cannot. I mean, you can work as hard as you like, but if you're focused on yourself, it's the best way of focusing on yourself. All major religions except Protestant Christianity has self-acts as part of the character reconstruction or penance process. Check it out. Everyone except for Protestant Christianity actually have self-acts as part of the penance process. In other words, you pay for part of that sin process. Christianity says you can't do it. It's coming to God. Yes, there's behaviours that follow, but it's coming to Christ and it's his working in you. Only Bible-based Christianity says you can't do it. Come to Jesus, believe on him, submit your will to him. That's the key thing. And you will achieve the goal. Because you've submitted your will, and that allows Christ to then work in you, to will and to do according to his good pleasure. This is just background. But Christianity, but does Christianity work for the good of everyone? In other words... If you, and of course it's going to be difficult to test this because you, you can't kind of measure, as I've said to many people, I can't tell who's a Christian or not even when I walk into church. And I can't sometimes tell even in myself because Paul is the one that says, I die daily. And our connection with Christ has to be daily. But I think as a collective, and the one thing that we do particularly in research is we actually like to get big populations so that we know that there's going to be variation in there but the overall theme should actually demonstrate the point. Am I right? So we can look back now over 2,000 years of Christianity because Christianity, from when Christ, around about 230-odd AD. So we're looking at Christianity over that period of time. Let's have a look. How do we know? I'll I'll just do this one first. There there is a concept out there, how do we know truth? And, of course, this has been around for a while, this sort sort of... we're now into a sort of a post-post-modernist era, but uh, at least with post-modernism saying there is no such thing as truth, and in fact that's carried through, there is no such thing as truth. Well, I would like to contend a little bit with that. There are areas of truth, and there are three types of truth. This is the philosophical bit. I need you to follow me. And I don't think anybody's had too much for lunch, hopefully. There is objective, subjective and moral truths. Let me just put those up on the screen. So first of all, truth is what is actual or factual. So something that is to work out whether something is true, we need to investigate it whether it actually works, does it do what it says it can do, is it morally right. So there are three truths, three elements to truth. There's objective. Now the interesting thing here is objective truth is if I wanted to work out how much force I would need to place on the back of this chair, to break it, not that I will, but you know, we could work that out objectively, couldn't we? Yep. And that would be an objective truth. Now, does truth exist in the objective? I could also say, well, if I step onto the scales now, how heavy am I? That's an objective truth. I could say, you know, how, how far could I throw something up the back of the room? I could measure that. That's an objective truth. So anything within the physical realm, and this is where science is great, we can actually work out what is objectively true. Fair enough? So does objective truth exist? Yes. Okay, so we've at least confirmed that there is such a thing as truth, and objective truth there is. What about subjective truth? Yeah, well, this is interesting. Subjective. If I say to you, my favorite color is magenta, and you say to me, well, Ross, I've never seen you wear magenta. I've never actually seen you even buy anything that's magenta. Can you tell me that that is not my truth? If I say my favourite is still magenta, well that's true, but my favourite is magenta. It's entirely up to me, that is subjective to me, I I can say what I like, that is up to me and you can't argue with me because that is a subjective truth and you've all got likes and dislikes and at that level, that's fine because it is something that you can like or dislike. So subjective truth, yeah, it's there. What about moral truth? In fact, the only truth that people really say that there is no truth, and that is when it comes to moral. Is there a foundational ethic? Is there a foundational right and wrong behavior? That's moral truth. Now, if I were to ask you in this room, was it right for that man to shoot that 13-year-old and that 15-year-old and murder them? Would there be anybody here, and I shouldn't ask you to put your hand up, but I doubt very much whether there would be anybody here that thought that that was the right thing to do? Snuffing out a life. And we could bring many other examples of which I won't go into. But yes, we would say that there is a moral truth, but actually... I'm just going to throw this in there, not that I'll take it any further from here. Unless you have an external authoritative source to set the foundation of behaviour, moral truth actually doesn't exist. If it's society that's just setting up a moral truth, in other words, let's just say that I was the legislature and for some reason I had control over the whole of Australia and I said, well... I'm going to make a law and my law says that everybody must be up at 7 o'clock in the morning and they must run around the block and if they don't run around the block I'll know it because we'll check and I'll have people checking and we will put you in jail if not because that is my my moral law for your health. Now it would be great if I could do it, I'd have a much healthier population, but the point is that you might do it because you thought that you were going to get caught, but if you thought that you could get away without getting caught, would you would you be at any would you have a conscience about not getting up and running around the block? It you probably wouldn't, because it's only me, and even though I was authoritative, I'm the same as you. I can't set standards like that. I mean, I can set it for a society, but I can't set it as a truly moral law. You wouldn't die for that law, would you? I don't think anybody would die for that law. Abortion. is a very interesting one. And it is a moral law. And it is something that we would say, okay, who is saying we should or shouldn't have abortion? And it's interesting that it's on both sides. It's interesting to do a whole Bible study on that, which I've done at some stage. The biggest killer in the world today
2: is abortion number one.
0: Yeah, that and... Uh... Interesting, yeah. So this idea of morality has to be an external authoritative source. So the the point is, if something is going to be true, in other words, what Christ is saying, then it has to be objectively true. So the Bible actually talks about man's origins as being intelligently designed and created. Subjectively, it has to be attractive. So even if Christianity were true, but it wasn't attractive, you still wouldn't follow it, would you? Why would you? I mean, you know, if it wasn't particularly attractive. And then the other one is, is it right for all? Morally true. So those three elements of truth, if Christianity is actually true, it's got to be right in all three areas. Now, I wasn't invited to give a talk on this one. Maybe one of these days I would like to. I don't think I've done one here. But absolutely, I know uh, Barron has got uh, lots to say in this area. But uh, as somebody mentioned up here before, the fact it is the science, well, as Barrett as actually saying, that uh, you know, it was the science that brought him to Christianity. It is the science that has confirmed my belief in a Creator God. Absolutely powerful. I just puzzle over the fact that anybody can believe anything else. So, has Christianity, what legacy has it left to the world? Society is full of the dysfunctional practices greed, dishonesty, extortion, rape, murder, theft, inequality, bigotry, slander. If you take any one of those, does selfishness play a role? Does selfishness play a role in greed, dishonesty, extortion, rape, murder, theft, inequality of various different types, bigotry, slander? Every single one of them, its foundation is that fact that somebody wanted something for themselves and they would do anything to get it. That's selfishness, self-centeredness. The one element common to all of these is common to all sins is the focus on the self as being of central importance. Self-interest is placed above concern for anyone else. All of them. And that selfishness, that outcome of, of selfishness is sin. So selfishness, sin, and Christ is the one that actually takes us from selfishness to selflessness. So the logical solution when you're heading in exactly the wrong direction is to head in exactly the opposite direction. Is that that true? If you know that you were supposed to be going north when you were going south, well, the best way to solve that problem is to turn right around and go the other way. Fair enough? So if we know that the cause of the world's problems is mostly or essentially because of selfishness, and I listed them all and you told me that I was right, so if selfishness is at the heart, the root of the big problem of the world, then what is the solution? Selflessness, it has to be. It has to be going the other way. The solution to selfishness must be altruism. Has everybody heard that word? Just selflessness. Acting out of complete disregard for self for the benefit of others. I mean, I, I wish I could unpack that a little bit more as to what that would actually look like. But, uh, you know, in the competitive nature, particularly of the academic world, and particularly when you're competing for grants and all of that sort of stuff, you know names and reputations and politics and everything get played in there and so sometimes the big money gets spent on things that I look at that and I go, how did you get a million dollars to do that research? Because actually all you're ending up, and I can think of terrific examples you know, producing antibodies to beta amyloid which is just producing an autoimmune disease, absolutely ridiculous and it's proven to be. Uh, But if we were all working for the good We would be going, oh, no, don't give that million dollars to me. Give it to that group over there because I think that they're doing the right thing. And fortunately, somebody else is going to go to our group. Well, I think their group is actually probably better at doing this. Why don't you give them some money for that? Instead, everybody's trying to grab it all for themselves. It doesn't work that way. It's not efficient. Does Christ's model fit this picture, that selfless picture? Central elements of Christianity, God is love. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The central tenet of Christianity is that selfless agape love. John 15:13 No greater love has any man than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. So I mean this is what Christ did that was his example and this is what he's encouraging Has being a Christian and living out these principles had an impact on societies around the world? Has it actually had an impact, and particularly a positive one? Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan wrote this. He says, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries, 2,000 years. If it were possible with some sort of supermagnet to pull out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? I can tell you very little. It is from his birth that most of the human race dates its calendars. It is by his name that millions curse, and in his name that millions pray. Christ is the most dominant figure of our time. What legacy has Christ left? mankind. And we've got 2,000 years we can look back and see what legacy has he actually left. Saving the physically frail children was a violation of society's norms and an affront to the Romans. It was actually illegal to have a child who was deformed. And that could even be just having a tooth out of place. But certainly any little child with Down syndrome Seneca, a philosophy of the first century, stated that we drown children who at birth are weakly and abnormal. Now, our society would look on that as being incredibly immoral, wouldn't we? Not in Roman society. So first century Christianity, absolutely. This is exactly what they were doing, because it was actually according to their laws. The Romans had some very interesting gods that they were all praying to. But according to their morality, this, it was immoral. You put that child out and you expose them or you actually drown them or you did something else to get rid of them. Mm, sacrifice is possible. The sacredness of human life, which we take for granted, was not there in the world before, well, at least uh, uh, as, as we know it as Christians. How did the Christians counter the human depravity? Abandoned children were commonly taken in the homes of Christians and raised as their own. In spite of many severe persecutions, Christians endured For the first three centuries, they did not relent in their promotion of the value of human life. Benignus of Dijon, a second-century Christian, was martyred in one of the more famous ones because he nursed, he had about 13 children that he had taken in. And, uh, you know, they might have had deformities to the leg, they might have been Down syndrome, but he nursed them, supported and protected a number of deformed and crippled children that had been saved from death after failed abortions and exposures. The Christians called the practice infanticide, murder and would not conform to that norm of society. They sought every opportunity to oppose the practice and in 374 the practice was eventually outlawed in Rome by Emperor Valentinian. As a result of the Christians who not only uh, practice it with some of them being killed as a result but also um, uh, lobbied the government. Christians brought an end to infanticide in countries where they had influence and they have raised the bar on the sanctity of human life. I'll tell you a very quick story. Um, A number of years ago, we worked in a little country uh, in in, uh, Africa. And uh, one of the fascinating things was a couple of things really shocked me about the value of human life and how it was treated there. Um, One particular case, a young boy had been stabbed. He was 13. He'd been stabbed by his younger brother, who was about 11, in the femoral artery. Just they were having a, an argument around uh, in the village one night and his younger brother had picked up a knife, hadn't intended to kill him, but had sort of thrust with the knife and, and stabbed him just in the, in the groin. Severed his femoral artery and as a result, of course, there's a lot of blood, that's a, that's a big artery, a lot of blood pouring out. The, um, the family put him in the back of uh, what we would call a ute, what they call a matola, and drove him off to the local hospital now, Queen Elizabeth II would have taken in about probably five or six minutes to get there, came into the emergency department, and there you've got a nurse now. Now, she's an important lady because uh, you know, she's got a starched white uniform on. And uh, she sees this, you know, they're carrying this bloody teenager in, going, oh, you know, we, we, what happened? Oh, he got stabbed. Oh, have you been to the police? No, we haven't been to the police. Oh, you must go to the police first. She didn't want to deal with the blood. That, little, that boy died as a result of that. And there's actually a few stories I could tell you in exactly that same. That did my head in. Because I'm coming from Australia and I'm thinking I'm going over to give a professional skill. And instead I'm kind of like, what? How could you do that? And I could give you another few cases which I won't. don't have time to. But we have an expectation that if it's five o'clock and you come in with an emergency into the emergency department, you have an expectation that regardless of whether somebody's going off, it's their time to go off, that they'll stay and look after you. Wouldn't you? Of course you would. And we would. That's what we do. But uh, I can tell you, that's not the standard. That is universally accepted around the world because human life is not the same. And this is a legacy of this country because of the fact that it has very strong Judeo-Christian roots. The Roman gladiatorial games, you've all heard of them, began in 264 BC. It actually went on for a long time and many of them lasted for months. Sometimes 100 or more gladiators would fight in any given day. A turned thumb signal, usually given by women in the audience, would seal the fate of defeat. Can you imagine sitting there and you're seeing the poor guy there and of course the girls are out there going, Yep. Yeah, no, we'll kill him. gone. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, well, cut over so almost. When Emperor Titus uh, inaugurated the Colosseum in Rome in AD 80, 5,000 wild animals were killed in one day, along with numerous gladiators. I mean, what a bloodbath. This was entertainment. I mean, you take your little kids along to that. It was the Christian gospel that finally put an end to the horrid games. And this is recognised within history uh, in the amphitheatres. The butcheries therein in were stopped uh, by... Now, they consider it Christian emperors. In 326, Constantine effectively dried up the main supply uh, of gladiators when he issued a decree that forbade the condemnation of criminals to the beast, in other words, saying that you can't. And that was because of the lobbying of Christians for which Constantine is uh, uh, arguably engaged. Now, whether it was politically or actual, we don't know, but his mum certainly was a Christian. By the end of the century, gladiatorial games ceased to exist in the East, and in 404, Honorius issued an edict forbidding gladiatorial combat in the West. Christians brought an end to killing for sport in the gladiatorial games. Of course, we still have, uh, you know, the state of origin. Um, and being a Queenslander, I can I can say I'm glad that you've you've won. At last. That's right. Learn how to play the game. Well, it might be a whitewash. We'll find out on the weekend. Okay, Christ said, No greater love is any man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Many people may die for a cause, and certainly we've got groups within Islamic extremism. But if that sacrifice is not done out of love, then nothing is gained. If it's not done out of love, nothing is gained. Certainly not for the community, and I believe not for the martyr. Historian Will Durrant described early Christianity as offering itself without reservation to all individuals, classes and nations. It wasn't limited uh, to one people or to Judaism. First to teach boys and girls together. That's interesting. In teaching both sexes, Christians took their cue from Jesus who never had a problem teaching women along with men. It's the first time they're actually brought together within a Christian context. Universal public education, you may not have known this, was actually started by uh, Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon, which is fascinating. Successfully persuaded civic authorities to implement the first public education system in Germany. The first kindergarten was also set up by a Lutheran Christian by the name of Friedrich Froebel. Education for the deaf, set up by uh, a number of people, uh, but all of them Christian. Education for the blind, Louis Braille, Again, a dedicated Christian. Modern universities grew out of Christian monasteries, not ancient Greek or Roman cities. And it's really interesting. You can go back to the history of particularly some of the large universities, certainly Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard. And you these were all actually Christian institutions who were established in order to produce good, young, educated Christians for society. It changed a little now. What about Christianity and health Before Christianity, there were some hospital-like centres in Buddhist regions, but these were mostly around temples, and you didn't have a structured element. They were places where people could kind of come and get more prayers than anything. The ancient Greeks practiced a very simple form of medicine, and Greek temples included a place where the sick could sleep and receive some help, mostly in terms of food. The Romans are believed to have established some military hospitals. Of course, you need to keep the military uh, uh, fit and ready for battle, but not general health care. It was the Christians of the Roman Empire who began to change society's attitude to the sick, disabled and dying. Remember that before that, the Romans are tossing them out. Go, die somewhere else. The Greco-Roman world was cruel and inhumane. The weak and the sick were despised. Abortion, infanticide and poisoning were widely practised. The doctor was often a sorcerer as well as being a healer and the power to heal equally conferred the power to kill. Cities with significant Christian populations were already beginning to build hospices, guest houses for the sick and chronically disabled by the time Constantine granted the first edict of toleration in three eleven. It's interesting that the second century, you remember the Black Plague? Yersinia pestis, being bitten by the, the flea from the rats and getting that uh, you know the buboes because of uh, the, the bacteria Yersinia. The second century, when plague hit the city of Carthage and thousands of people were dying. Uh, pagan households threw sufferers onto the street. Well documented. The entire Christian community responded. They were seen on the streets offering comfort and taking them into their own homes to be cared for. They didn't know that they weren't going to get the plague. They just didn't want to see these people suffering and dying alone. Now, we are a Christian legacy quite a few centuries afterwards. If we have the same thing happen in Sydney, I would pray that we would do the same thing. Selflessness. They were seen on the streets offering comfort and taking them into their own homes. Christianity started the modern concept of healthcare for all, regardless of who they were. It's interesting that Max Weber, who was a, uh, an agnostic, actually, a uh, social scientist, wrote the book The Protestant Epic and the Spirit of Capitalism. So, do we have, did Christianity have anything to do with modern economics? The Protestant ethic Max Weber opposes, in the Protestant ethic, Max Weber opposes the Marxist concept of dialectical materialism, don't worry about that, and relates the rise of capitalist economy to the Calvinist or Christian belief in the moral value of hard work and the fulfillment of one's worldly duties. He was roundly criticized when he published this in 1905 because he said it was the Protestant countries, North America, Europe, Britain, etc., who were progressing because they had the Protestant ethic. But the Catholic nations were not progressing and the nations that were choosing or had other moral foundations as religions were also not progressing. Fascinating. Protestant Christianity in particular set the basis for Western society's economic success. And I'll just quote Robert Woodbury, which was, he published this in 2012. He says, Christianity and what he called conversary Protestants profoundly shaped both the development and global spread of the liberal democracy shaping the ideas, and a lot of people say it's coming from the Greek philosophy. It's very, very different what we call a liberal democracy to Greek democracy. Shaping the ideas of the institution that make stable liberal democracy more likely, including mass education, mass printing, voluntary associations, non-violent social uh, movement tactics, and particular types of reform which dispersed power beyond traditional elites and allowed a broader segment of the population to influence politics. Basically what he's saying is that the sort of general... You know, we cast a vote in our democracy, and we can change our governments. This kind of liberal democracy doesn't come by chance. This didn't come from the way the Greeks used it, which was more of an elitist approach for only a select group. It came as a result of Christianity. And it's actually, it's a, it's a, if you want a copy of it, I can give it to you. But uh, it's it's uh, out of Max Weber. I did my best to struggle through Weber, but uh, this one is much easier to read. So Protestant Christian principles set the foundation for the development of modern democracy. We have an awful lot to thank the Christian principles that Christ inaugurated 2,000 years ago. So Christians brought an end to infanticide. Christians brought an end to killing for sport. Christians started the modern concept of health uh, care for all because of their high standard of what they considered the value of human life. Christianity started the modern concept of education for all, which we all enjoy and take for granted. Christian principles set the basis for Western society's economic success and essentially because we are a group that can trust each other within that context. We have a foundation which we can say, you do something, I expect you to give me a fair fair work for a fair price. Now, once you start taking some of that morality out of it, which I suspect we are tracking fairly fast now with our economies now, now, and start trying to have it just as a market, then unfortunately things disintegrate. And uh, I haven't got time to go into it, but we're we're running in that direction. Christian principles set the foundation for the development of modern democracy, being able as a community to be able to change and at least moderate um, uh, management. So being a Christian will make a difference. Not because you're part of the church system, but because you are part of the body of Christ and stand for a principle. That's a really important point. In fact, the foundation principle of the of the universe, that is God is love. Because you stand for that principle, you will make a difference. A lot of people are worried what difference will they make in the world. I remember a young lady came to me once and... Uh, she was a student, um, was at the university, and she, she knew that I was a Christian, came in. And uh, she was worried. She'd, she'd got a good mark in her master's, and uh, so she was thinking of doing a PhD, but wasn't sure whether or not she had quite the, the uh, academic skills to do it. And we talked for a while, and, and I thought that she, she, she probably could. But I said, even more important than that, within the context of where you work, because you are a Christian, you will make a positive difference. Just very quickly, um, just in the last week I had the opportunity of working, uh, now we have a, a motto at the Sydney Adventist Hospital, I don't know whether you, you know what the motto, does anybody know what the motto of the Sydney Adventist Hospital is? It's Christianity in Action, and as I've pointed out, you can't have Christianity in Action without Christians in Action, um, but uh, it um, it was great. One of the uh, I needed to be re-accredited for doing cannulations, and so I was working with one of the uh, uh, cannulation experts there. Uh, some of you will, uh, will know Anthony Hudapier. I don't think you would mind me using his name. What I really enjoyed about... Now, Anthony has a unique style, but watching him move around the hospital and the way he greeted patients, the way he talked to people in the lift, the way he talked to you know other workers who might be doing something from cleaning to food services or whatever it is, It just naturally came out. And the way he engaged, there was just such a positive Christian element to that. Again, in his own unique personal style. But I love the Christian element that came out. You can't teach that. You can't legislate for it. You can ask people to be kind. You can ask people to do special tasks and make sure that they come. But you cannot legislate for what comes naturally out of somebody when Christ is motivating them. Because they're noticing. He would notice whether somebody was slightly nervous about what was going on. And he would be able to engage with them in a way that was empathetic only because he had a heart for people. You can't teach people that. But when Christ is in people's hearts, God is love, and that love comes through. And it makes a difference to every interaction they make. I just want to encourage Christians to get out there and be Christians. You don't have to necessarily give you know, massive theological treaties unless somebody's asking you but you just have to be you and be connected with Christ every day and you will make a difference and collectively you've seen what Christianity has done has it been positive for the societies that I've mentioned it has been incredibly positive and we are living the legacy of what Christians have done often at the expense of their own livelihoods and often their own lives Christians who practice love cannot help but make a difference. So you are fearfully and wonderfully made, and God has a purpose for every Christian. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Notice who made that comment. It is the God of the universe, who for which we can look back through history, and we can say when people have put in practice corporately, or collectively at least, The things, the principles that he's asked us to do, it has always ended up with a positive response. Now a number of these people ended up with their their, their goods confiscated, some of them lost their lives, etc. But it created a positive for the community. It was. God has provided an opportunity he has provided for us so that when he says, I came that they may have life and have it to the full, we can believe in what he says. It works. Shall we just bow our heads? Father in heaven, thank you once again for everything that you have given us. We thank you for your example. We thank you for your death on the cross. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, which provides an empowerment and leads us to the truth that, Father, you so desperately want us to not only have, but to share. And we pray for each one here today that we would go out, Lord, inspired that we are living out the end of that legacy. And we pray that you will come soon. In Christ's name, amen. This message was made available by Fountain in the City. For more resources like this, visit fountaininthecity.com.au.
1: View Academy coming up next, Earth and Vessels will sing Live Out Thy Life.
3: Out thy life within me, O Jesus King of Kings.
1: Hi, folks. William Ackland with you again. Today, I would like to share with you on the subject of seconds. I am looking at the large face of my kitchen clock, not at the hour or minute hands, but at the slender second hand, relentlessly consigning the seconds into eternity. A second is a small piece of time, so surely it cannot be important. Just tell that, though, to the Formula One racing car driver who has won the final race of the season by just 5 one-thousandth of a second. Or the athlete, a champion 400-metre runner who edged forward at the line and won by one-hundredth of a second. Or tell that to the soldier who, unknowingly, made a quick movement of his head and thus dodged a bullet that otherwise would have bored into him right in the middle of his forehead. So seconds, while a short passage of time are important, we live our lives in seconds that add up to minutes, then hours, days, weeks, months, and years, just one second at a time that cannot be recalled. And where do seconds come from? From a very large ball, Mother Earth no less, the planet we call home. Its revolutions, approximately one every 24 hours, are where seconds come from. A second, of course, is the way minutes and hours and days are divided into. This is a very convenient way to accurately record and predict time and events. For common everyday use, that is, for astronomical and scientific purposes, other more exact measurements are used, but they are beyond the scope of this article. It was the Babylonians who used the sexagesimal system, that is counting in 60s, that was used in mathematics and astronomy. They had borrowed this system from the Sumerians, who are understood to have used this system earlier still. Seconds and minutes and hours are used to give people an idea of an approximate or an exact time when they can expect an event to happen. I'll be back in a minute really means that the person would return in a short time, which could be a number of minutes. Similarly, I'll ring you back in 10, could mean rarely, in five minutes, or more probably in 15 or 20. A slightly annoying notice that is posted on the door of a business place may say, back in 10, which begs the question, when did the 10 commence? The word seconds is used in ways other than when relating to time. Your kind host may ask you, after you have enjoyed the delicate sweetness of a dessert, would you like a second? And in sports, seconds are close and active supporters of a sports person who realises how valuable is that very support. But it is the brief period of time we call a second that is of interest in this article. The matter of correct timing, often to a fraction of a second, is what is required in many areas of life, particularly since the mechanical revolution occurred. Even before then, when exquisitely made watches and other precise instruments, such as chronometers, were made, these had to be accurate to a very fine degree. Just how fine? Check the internet. Where human life is involved... Accuracy is that much more important, such as in a large passenger plane, or more particularly in a space rocket carrying precious human cargo to a space station. Just imagine how the crew would feel flashing by the space station into outer space because of inaccurate instruments and controls. In a past era, we would say, look after the pennies and the pounds will look after themselves. Perhaps the same principle applies here and it may even be more important that if we look after the seconds, the hours, days, weeks and months will look after themselves. It is a general principle that small things are important. This is critically so when dealing with life, for all life starts off small and when all goes well, as it usually does, this small piece of life an embryo or a sequoia seed will grow to become something wonderful to be loved or admired. When checking the time by the kitchen clock, however powered, we do not expect precision. What we want to know is where we are in the space of the morning, afternoon or evening. Some people have the gift of being good estimators of time, but for the most of us, a clock or watch of some kind is good enough. In recent years, the mobile phone gives us a very accurate time, and often we tend to judge other timepieces by what our mobile phone says. Time is important to God too, but in a different way to us. In the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verse 4, it is interesting to read in this respect where it says, But at just the right time, God sent his Son into the world through the miracle of human birth born subject to the law. So, as I wind up these few words, just how many seconds have elapsed? I cannot tell, for this article has been written in two spells, and I did not think of timing myself before I commenced. Some things are important and others are not. The important thing is that we value time and use it well, for it was Benjamin Franklin who said, time is the stuff life is made of. I'm looking for
0: the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13
3: Picture this dramatic scene. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Revelation 14, 1-16 This is the first harvest in this chapter. It points to the time when Christ gathers his people to himself, fulfilling his promise, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. It's been a pleasure
2: bringing you this program here on 3ABN Australia Radio.